0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for August 5th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of the program, which issues each Friday and features commentary from practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding appellate issues of salience. We've got two terrific guests this week, both discussing cases in which some rather problematic issues plagued two criminal prosecutions, one taking place in the state of California and one in Texas. The improprieties in the first case, where a prosecutor misrepresented in an affidavit that an alibi witness was in fact the murder victim, tests in an appellate ruling from the Ninth Circuit filed in June the contours of the immunity enjoyed by prosecutors in the event such misdeeds are committed. The second case, a 1996 capital sentence case from Texas, which has given rise to a U.S. Supreme Court challenge slated for October term 2016 saw a defense expert witness give testimony implying the defendant would be more likely to commit future crimes due to his skin color. Our first guest, Brian Morris, an associate with the firm Dwayne Morris in San Diego, will join the program to recapitulate the bizarre events underlying that recent ruling from the Ninth Circuit in the case of Garman versus the County of Los Angeles. There, in an underlying trial, a murder defendant's mother, Dietrich Garman, had been slated to be an alibi witness, but prior to undergoing an invasive surgery with an uncertain outcome, she had made available to the prosecution some medical records pertinent to that surgery. However, a prosecutor then swore an affidavit, averring that Miss Garmin, the defendant's mother, was not an alibi witness but the murder victim, and thereby garnered additional medical records that the prosecutor subsequently used at trial to impeach Garmin. Ms. Garman filed a a Section 1983 claim pro se in federal court, but met an adverse result. As the district court held, the prosecutor was, all that apparent impropriety notwithstanding, entitled to prosecutorial immunity. At that point, Mr. Morris took up the case as part of his firm's pro bono practice and brought the challenge to the Ninth Circuit, where he argued the case and netted a reversal. He'll discuss the important ways that the ruling illuminates both federal and And state doctrines of immunity. Next, we'll hear from Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a 10-attorney appellate boutique in San Francisco, as he visits for the third installment of our United States Supreme Court October term 2016 preview. The case we'll discuss today, Buck v. Davis, is the latest chapter in a decades-long appeal that began in 1996, when Dwayne Buck, who had been convicted of two grisly murders, was given a capital sentence unduly because of, he argues, the fact that he is a black man. At Buck's sentencing hearing, a defense expert offered testimony that Buck's race would make him more likely to commit future crimes, an important consideration in Texas sentencing courts. Though the state of Texas subsequently deemed such evidence improper, Buck failed to gain a new sentencing hearing through state habeas appeals and has failed on previous federal appeals, including one to the United States Supreme Court. However, An intervening SCOTUS decision offered him another chance at an appeal, though again, it's met adverse rulings in Texas District Court and in the Fifth Circuit. He will return to the country's high court next term for his last shot, and surely the racial tensions roiling the country will make this question, whether a black man will be put to death because, at least in part, the simple fact of his skin color, one that is sure to attract notice. Before we get to my guest, I'd like to remind you, as always, that you can receive CLE credit for having listened to this episode of the podcast. There should be a link to a short true-false test at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Follow that, take the test, and one hour of CLE credit is yours. Without any further ado, let's move now to my conversation with Brian Morris. We're happy to welcome in now Brian Morris, an associate with the firm Dwayne Morris in San Diego, who argued this case on behalf of Detrice Garman. Mr. Morris, congratulations on the result, and thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so
0: let's, uh, let's get straight to the underlying facts here. They're, they're pretty engrossing, and they read a bit like a, a Kafka novel. The, this case starts sort of in the context of a of another case, a murder prosecution, in which Ms. Garman was going to be an alibi witness for the defendant, who was her son. But I believe she was scheduled to have a brain surgery of some kind, and the outcome of that surgery was uncertain. And so she was going to provide certain medical records, I believe, to, to the prosecution. Could, could you tell me what exactly was, was happening here?
1: Sure. So you, you basically have it right. So Ms. Garman was uh, scheduled to be uh, an alibi witness in her son's murder trial she was scheduled to have a brain operation before the trial. So her son's attorney wanted to preserve her testimony should she become unavailable or unsuited to testify. So there was a motion to conditionally examine Miss Garman. In connection with that, she executed a, a release of medical records that basically allowed her medical provider to provide some information related to her specific condition to the district attorney's office that they could use to sort of get a flavor of, you know, what her medical condition was. The day after she executed that release, the district attorney's office actually issued a subpoena to her medical provider, basically indicating that Miss Garman was actually the, the victim in the particular criminal proceedings. So basically that she had been murdered by her son. Um, and in doing so, they also requested all of her medical information and indicated to her medical provider that they were required to disclose it under state mandatory reporting laws. So those are the kind of facts that really give rise to the case. Uh, Ms. Garman did eventually testify. Those records were eventually raised at the at the uh, criminal proceedings, and and then he fast forward. Here we are.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, many levels of administration involved. You you, you think for a second, well, couldn't have the, the provider said, well, actually, she's she's still alive. We're about to we're about to put her into surgery. So the records are are used at, at trial uh, to to impeach her, and and so as a result, Ms. Garman brings a a suit in federal district court involving a few different claims, some Section 1983 claims and some state claims. But her her suit is dismissed at the trial court level, and then she appeals. Ms. Garmin is is a pro se litigant here, and at some point I believe it's when the case comes up on appeal is when when you become involved, your firm becomes involved. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, The district court initially dismissed her claims with prejudice um, against both uh, the the, the district attorneys that were involved in the case uh, the county of Los Angeles, and uh, Kaiser, actually. Um, so she did appeal, and then through the Ninth nice Circuit's pro bono program, where the court selects certain cases where they want the the party to be represented. Um, you know, Dwayne Morris let me take on the case. Um, we actually have a very good pro bono program, so it was a good opportunity for a young associate like me to get involved in something like this. So that's kind of how we got involved in the case.
0: Okay. Then can you paint for me the issues presented by this particular Appeal. So, Miss Garman says, you know, these uh, the subpoena that was that that sought her complete medical record history was improper, and so she brings federal and state claims. Could you, could you just sort of present to me the the issues uh, involved in this appeal?
1: Sure. So, just to sort of give you a general overview. Um, as some people might know, prosecutors have immunity from liability for certain conduct that occurs in the context of a judicial proceeding or when acting as an advocate on behalf of the state in a criminal proceeding. Um, so the core issues presented here was, you know, whether the prosecutor um, was entitled to what you call absolute immunity for the conduct that I just described, that was issuing the subpoena, attesting to the facts that supported the subpoena, and then ultimately using that, those documents at trial. So that was the core issue before the Ninth Circuit.
0: Okay. And now that can sort of be split into two separate issues a little bit, right? There's there's immunity as it pertains to the federal claims brought and then immunity that pertains to the state claims brought. Are those immunities different, and are the standards that apply to them different?
1: They are a bit different. So not to get too far into the weeds, absolute immunity under federal law is actually derived from the common law. So, um, And it's based on this idea that you want to immunize prosecutors from the vexatious litigation that would happen if every criminal defendant were able to sue them because of some alleged impropriety. Um, but it's not a stat- it's not statutory. It derives from the common law. State-, state immunity derives from statutes. So California has various immunity statutes that provide qualified and absolute immunity, and the standards can vary depending on how those um, statutes have been interpreted.
0: Okay, then maybe we'll touch on, on the federal claims first. So these claims are, are broadened at the trial court level. The the court there determines that the prosecutor here and the, the district attorney's office in the county were, were immune from both the federal and state law claims. Um, but how did the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal rule on, on that question of whether uh, the prosecutor enjoyed immunity against the federal claims?
1: The Ninth Circuit reversed the district court decision, which basically it given the prosecutor's blanket immunity for the conduct that I just described. Um, The Ninth Circuit reached that conclusion in an interesting way. So the district court basically held that the issuing of a subpoena is a core prosecutorial function and it's intimately associated with the judicial process. And, you know, the immunity doctrine is not so much concerned with how egregious the conduct is it's really based on what function is a prosecutor performing. And if you're performing a core advocate function for the state in connection with criminal proceedings, you're generally going to be entitled to absolute immunity. What the Ninth Circuit did is they said, yes, that, that might be true. But if you actually look in support of that subpoena, there was actually attested to facts that had to be provided. Um, so those facts I just told you about saying that Ms. Garman had been had been murdered by her son, those were all attested to by the district attorney's office. And th- those were used to support the issuance of the subpoena. What the Ninth Circuit said was, and this derives from a uh, Supreme Court case called Kalina, they said when, when a prosecutor is acting as a witness, attesting to specific facts, the prosecutor will not be entitled to absolute immunity because it is not a prosecutorial function. So in this case, by attesting to the specific facts set forth in the affidavit that supported the subpoena, they were not entitled to absolute immunity. Somebody else, for example, could have signed that affidavit. And that's what the court reasoned, that the prosecutor is not the only person who could have attested to these facts. It could have been an investigator. It could have been somebody else. So the prosecutor, again, was acting more as a witness, less as a prosecutor in signing that affidavit in support of the subpoena. Sure. Sure.
0: So like you, you hint to the the trial court and the, the appeals court sort of view the, the type of activity that's performed as opposed to maybe the, the content of the activity or the egregious nature of the activity, which left me a bit wondering after reading this opinion, um, why exactly is it the legal analysis? I know in, in opinions, you know, legal analysis is often um, sort of technical and and deliberate, but I was sort of waiting, reading to this opinion for the court of appeals to say, you know, hey, this is, a pretty flagrant misrepresentation of, of the facts at hand. If we assume that it was intentional, you know, that this that Ms. Garvin was, was the victim as opposed to an alibi witness, um, the court doesn't really get to that issue. They just say, well, this particular activity, this type of activity, swearing an affidavit is more uh, the thing a witness would do than a prosecutor, so that's kind of as far as we need to go. Is that um, a, a thought you had as well?
1: Sure. Well, you know, when I first got involved in this case um, – you know that's kind of what I thought. You know, I hear the facts, of the case, and I'm kind of it's kind of galling at first. Um, but when you sort of really delve into the doctrine, what you find is that you know it's really built in that the egregiousness of the conduct is really not what the court looks to. It's really about the function. Um, so you know, rightly or wrongly, courts have held that prosecu- prosecutors are immune from all manner of conduct that we would all deem very egregious. You know, um, eliciting false statements. Um, you know, perhaps suppressing evidence, so long as it's a a post indictment conduct that's directly related to the criminal proceeding. Some courts have held that prosecutors are absolutely immune from that kind of conduct. And, you know, one of the reasons, part of the reasoning is that, well, you know, one, we don't want to incentivize this vexatious litigation that I mentioned earlier, but also that, you know, there are other remedies potentially available or other disincentives from that kind of conduct. So it could be sanctions from the state bar. It could be a criminal. Um, suppressing evidence, for example, might be criminal in certain contexts. Um, but I think if you really look, what you find is, as a practical matter, those incentives don't necessarily work. Um, there has been some scholarship on this issue that, you know, as a practical matter, these things don't really happen. So, um, but in any event, the doctrine has developed such that, you know, there's a lot of conduct that most of us would find pretty jarring um, that the courts have held the prosecutors are absolutely immune from.
0: Okay. And then, like you say, the, the doctrine supposes that the other methods of deterrence will do the work that needs to be done as opposed to um, watering down any immunity. Um, you made one other, one other contention, and before the Ninth Circuit, and it was that abs- absolute immunity should not um, apply at all in cases where you know claims are brought by witnesses like Ms. Garman, who are third party witnesses. They're they're unindicted in the kind of the underlying the underlying action, but the the court declined to adopt such a rule. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And we did make that argument, and. Um, You know, we did have some case law supporting it. Admittedly, um, it's not something that's been addressed by a lot of courts because most of these claims, frankly, as you would expect, are brought by people who've been convicted of crimes, you know, people that are in jail. Um, And what we argued, you know, among other things, is that, look, one of the things the courts always say when extending immunity is, well, the criminal defendant is represented by counsel who should be able to advance their interest who should ensure that all the evidence is revealed, who should do all of these things to protect their interests. And our argument was, look, as a witness, you're not represented by counsel, um, you know, to oversee the prosecutor, to ensure they're treating you fairly. Um, And secondly, the core policy reason for immunity that I mentioned earlier, which is prohibiting sort of vexatious litigation by all these convicted criminal defendants, um, wouldn't really apply in this context, you're not going to have a lot of witnesses who are going to bring claims against prosecutors, frankly, because be it a practical matter that they have other things going on and they're not incarcerated. But also, I think principally, you know, the misconduct is typically not going to be directed at them. But the Ninth circuit did not adopt such a rule. So, you know, obviously we we wanted them to, but we were still happy with the outcome.
0: Sure. Yeah. And and so as to the federal immunity uh, argument, the court holds that at most defense here will have qualified immunity. What would uh, Ms. Garman need to show then, stipulate that qualified immunity exists? So what, uh, what sort of standard needs to be met for her 1983 claim to prevail?
1: Sure. So, you know, if, if the district court decides that they are entitled to qualified immunity, qualified immunity is sometimes referred to as good faith immunity, basically looks to whether the prosecutor acted in good faith, believe that the conduct they were engaging in was lawful. So th- that's really the core, uh, the sort of the core component of qualified immunity. So, you know, for example, if a, if a prosecutor perhaps steps out of bounds a bit, but was acting based on a reasonable understanding of existing law, um, you know, acted reasonably, they're probably going to be immune. Whereas, you know, I, I certainly think in a case like this where the conduct clearly improper qualified immunity would not apply. Obviously, that's for the district court to decide in the first instance. Um, but that's basically the difference in how it can affect the litigation.
0: That makes sense. Um, then let's move over to the, the state law claim. So at the trial court level, likewise, the court ruled that state law immunity prevented Ms. Garman's claims from succeeding. What, um, I guess, how did, how did the Ninth Circuit come down specifically with regard to the state immunity defense?
1: Sure. So I'll give you a little history here. Uh, you know, Sort of at a, at the end of the day, the district, the, excuse me, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the prosecutors were not entitled to absolute immunity. Um, the district court had reached an opposite conclusion, and there's been an ongoing debate on this issue, um, and I can give you a little bit of history. Um, the California Supreme Court in 1974, in a case called, named Sullivan, concluded that the statute at issue that grants absolute immunity basically only applied to claims for malicious prosecution, or at least that was our reading of the case. Um, subsequently, a lot of California appellate courts have really expanded the absolute immunity to encompass all manner of conduct um, that, at least under our view, was not encompassed in that Solomon decision. Um, there have been some federal district courts that have adopted Uh, the more expansive view of the statute, and there have been some that have adopted the more narrow view of the statute that we envisioned. Um, As far as I know, the Ninth Circuit is the first federal court of appeal to opine on the issue, and they basically adopted our view that the state law absolute immunity statute that was at issue here only applied to claims for malicious prosecution. So, you know, because that was not our cause of action in this case, um, the court basically concluded that they were not entitled to absolute immunity.
0: I assume you may have Answer my next question. There, in, in our article covering this this ruling, you mentioned that there's been that there was some state law immunity analysis that prior to this had, had really not been been addressed by California courts. Um, so, is that what you're you're talking about, sort of clearing up what exactly that 1970s decision meant in terms of how broad the the immunity uh, stretches?
1: That's exactly right. The, the California Supreme Court has really only addressed it in that case and has not revisited the issue, despite the fact that. Um, a lot of California appellate courts have you know read it very broadly so it was good to get you know uh, a high court's opinion on the topic um, and obviously the California Supreme Court might revisit it at, at some time but um, this was welcome to, to get this kind of clarification from the court.
0: okay we'll leave it there for now the case is now kicked back down to the district court and um, we'll, we'll see what happens mr. Brian Morris thanks for being on the show and good luck to the extent you continue working on, on this litigation.
1: Thank you. Happy to be with you.
0: Once more, that was Brian Morris with the firm Dwayne Morris in San Diego talking about his experience arguing the case of Garmin versus the county of Los Angeles and helping us learn a bit more about the doctrines of federal and state prosecutorial immunity. Before we move to my next guest, Ben Foyer from the California Appellate Group, let me first remind you again, CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. Also, I'd like to mention here that if you as a listener have any ideas for a future podcast segment or would like to appear on the show, feel free to reach out. I can be reached at brian underscore at dailyjournal.com. Let's move now to my conversation with Ben Foyer, previewing the case of Buck v. Davis, slated on the October term 2016 docket in the U.S. Supreme Court. We welcome in now Ben Foyer, the chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, which is a a 10-lawyer appellate boutique firm in San Francisco. He has devoted his entire career to appellate law. He serves as the lead appellate counsel in, in many federal and state appeals with his firm. He clicked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for Judge Carlos Bea, and in 2013 won the Barrister of the Year award from the San Francisco Bar Association for his work in the appellate section, where he's the founder and longtime chair. And uh, least of all, he contributes regularly to the Daily Journal's column section, both uh, individually, himself, and his team contributes columns under the appellation Appellate Zealots. Mr. Floyd, thanks for being
2: on the program. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here.
0: The case we're discussing here today is Buck first Davis, one of the October term 2016 cases and it's a it's a death penalty appeal the principal focus of this case is the issue of whether or not the sentencing jury was improperly biased to whether they sentenced the defendant based on the fact that he was black based on his race
2: yeah um, that's you know i think the principal issue in the case or i think the reason that the case probably drew the attention of the supreme court is that it presents a an issue that when you hear about it, it, is really kind of jarring. Um, a witness, an expert witness, testified uh in the penalty phase of this criminal case, in the capital penalty phase of this criminal case, that the defendant, fellow named Buck, had a greater likelihood of committing future crimes because he is black. Uh and the witness testified to this based on the sole reason the witness testified to this was based on the overrepresentation of African-Americans in the prison system. So right. the that's it. Right. You, I mean, you hear about that and, and your first reaction is, whoa.
0: Right.
2: Uh, and, and this didn't take place in the 1950s or 1960s. This took place in 1996.
0: Another interesting facet is the fact that this expert witness was not on the state's side. I mean, he was put on by... Doc's counsel by the the defense counsel at the sentencing phase
2: that's, why why would that's that happen exactly right so so this is so so this case is, has a lot of you know strange aspects to it uh, that really make it a very strange and interesting case so let's why don't we talk a little bit about the background of the case let's explain how we got to where we did uh, and then we can kind of talk about why these things might have happened. Or maybe even in that process, it may become more clear. Although ultimately, I have to tell you, I can't fathom personally why a lawyer would put on that kind of evidence, a penalty phase in a capital case, or allow that kind of testimony by a witness that they call So, So this case comes out of a horrendous crime that this fellow Buck had an ex-girlfriend uh, they broke up a week later he went to her house with a with a gun she was having a house party he accused one of her friends of sleeping with her he shot the friend he turned around and shot her there were two eyewitnesses there's very little question at least based on that evidence or at least that's been been really presented uh in an effective way that buck committed these crimes right that he killed two people uh, and there was an 11-year-old who watched the whole thing. It was really very disturbing. So, sure. so I think that's important to sort of recognize. I think that, that it's probably fair to recognize. This issue comes up in the sentencing phase of the case only. So the only question here is whether the jury in the, in its death penalty well, – it's not the only question here, as we'll talk about. There are a number of questions in this case. But it, whether in in a, in giving its sentence of death, the jury was – affected by, uh, a, the jury had to find under, tech, this took place in Texas and under the law uh, in uh, Texas, the jury is required to find that there is a likelihood of a future commission of crimes, uh, potentially if this person is not executed. Uh, and so, the, so one of the key questions here, of course, is whether the evidence that was put on by this witness uh, affected the jury's determination of that. So uh, Buck had two appointed defense lawyers at trial. Um, one of them is a guy named Danny Easterling. We don't know much about him, but his other lawyer is a guy named Jerry Guirneau. Uh, now, Jerry Guirneau is an interesting character. Jerry Guirneau is relatively famous, and he's famous for being a terrible capital punishment lawyer. These lawyers were assigned by the state by the way, because uh, Buck was indigent. Uh, uh, so he was entitled to a uh, counsel at the state's expense. But in 2010, obviously many years after Buck's trial, but in 2010, the New York Times actually did a profile of Jerry Guirno, one of Buck's appointed lawyers. And uh, Adam Liptak at the Times called him the lawyer, the, the title of the article was The Lawyer Best Known for Losing Capital Cases. And the article pointed out that Guirneau personally lost more capital punishment cases and got more of his clients on death row, or ended up with more of his clients on death row, than 20, than half the states with capital punishment have on death row altogether combined.
0: Wow. Uh, that's not right. something you want to be known for. Uh,
2: no. And, and there is, there's a quote in the article by someone calling Guirneau, quote, an undertaker for the state of Texas. So, probably not the guy that most of us would want at our capital trial, murder trial, and sentencing, but that's who Buck got. Uh, And that may start to give an indication of the type of defense that Buck may have received, and especially the type of defense that would lead to the presentation of evidence on the defendant's side of. That included testimony or some evidence that uh, Buck is more likely to commit a crime in the future because of his race. Uh, now, as and I'll, as I'll explain, there there may well have been other reasons that Buck's counsel did that. But uh, um, this is certainly one possible explanation that this simply was a not a great lawyer, <laughs> sure. to, to put it mildly. So, so Buck committed this crime. He was assigned these, these lawyers. And uh, the case went to trial. Uh, he was convicted. In the penalty phase, his lawyer called a psychologist named Dr. Walter Quijano. And Dr. Quijano testified in part that Buck had a higher likelihood of committing future crimes because he's his black. Quijano also testified that overall, he thought Buck did not have a high likelihood of committing crimes in the future based on other circumstances in Buck's life. But his report included that statement, or at least uh, uh, evidence, and he testified about it, that, that Buck had a higher propensity for committing a future crime, in part because he's black, uh, even if overall uh, his, his propensity was, was somewhat lower. Uh, the defense lawyer asked Keanu about this, raised the issue for the first time, because Keanu was the defense attorney's expert. And, and the defense attorney, you Gu- know, they, they had – uh, a copy of Kihano's report, so they knew this was what Kihano was going to testify about. They called him anyway, and they asked about it. He testified about it. He said the <laughs> said it on the stand. And then the prosecutor got up and he essentially asked him more about it. He asked him, you know, are are you really saying that you know Buck might have a higher propensity? He didn't ask it incredulously. He uh, um, asked it in a way that underscored the fact that part of his report was that Buck's race. Uh, gave him a higher propensity for potentially committing a future crime. Ultimately, the jury sentenced Buck to death.
0: It's interesting when you recount, like you say, I mean, obviously notwithstanding the grisliness of the underlying crimes for which he was convicted, and that's not being challenged. Like you say, in the sentencing phase, you consider things like how they're behaving in prison, whether they do seem um, like they would be able to just live a life sentence without causing any terrible violence or harm. Um, and so some of that militated against, obviously, you say, a capital sentence. But uh, the skin color of the man, that is a factor to be weighed in, according to you know, those reports. It's uh, obviously, like you say, it's kind of jarring.
2: Right. It, it, it's very surprising. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty far outside of mainstream legal thought at this point to think that this is acceptable evidence to include and that's something, in fact, that Texas has recognized. Um, in 2000, and this relates to what, what happened to uh, uh, Buck, but in 2000, in a different case, the state of Texas convicted a man named Victor Saldano of kidnapping and murder. In the capital sentencing phase, the prosecution called none other than Dr. Quijano, who testified that Saldano's race increased his likelihood to commit future crimes, just as he testified in Buck's case to the same fact. This guy Saldano was sentenced to, to death and appealed. The Texas court affirmed, but he sought review in the U.S. Supreme Court. So filed a cert petition in the U.S. Supreme Court. In response to the cert petition, the attorney general of Texas, confessed error and acknowledged, in the view of the Attorney General's office, in the view of the state of Texas, that Quiano's testimony violated Saldano's rights. The AG also said that it would not resist challenges to capital punishment sentences that had in part been based on Quiano's testimony in other cases. After the Attorney General of Texas said this, the U.S. Supreme Court, instead of granting sort or deciding the issue, vacated and remanded the decisions to the Texas courts to determine how to proceed, given the Attorney General's acknowledgement. After that announcement, the Attorney General's Office of Texas indicated that it had identified the other cases in which Saldano's testimony may have infected the capital phase of sentencing and listed bucks among them. In Saldano's case, uh, on remand, despite Keanu's testimony, the Texas Court of Appeals affirmed the sentence of death on a different ground, that Saldano's lawyer didn't object to the testimony when the prosecutor offered it and did not preserve the claim for appellate review. However, ultimately, on habeas review, a federal court commuted Saldano's sentence uh, due to the testimony of uh, Keanu. So then, um, Buck brings his
0: own state habeas appeal, but this one this one fails. Um, unlike Saldano's, eventually prevailed, like you say, uh, and that it just seems like it would sort of run counter to the attorney general's acknowledgement and the cases that had been remanded or, or altered uh, previously. Why why did Buck's appeal fail?
2: Well, there were actually three state habeas appeals. Buck's first habeas appeal came from a state-appointed habeas counsel who wasn't much better than Buck's state-appointed trial counsel and who didn't even raise the issue of Keano's testimony about Buck's likelihood to commit crimes based on race. And in fact, was li- the habeas petition was later deemed ref- by the courts to raise only frivolous issues. Buck's second petition came Five years later, when that habeas lawyer actually got around to filing a second habeas petition on the basis of Chiano's testimony and the Saldano, what happened in the Saldano matter. But by then, a new attorney general was in place in Texas who had been appointed by a later, more conservative Texas governor. And this attorney general concluded that Buck's case was different from the other cases involving Chiano because Buck's counsel, not the state, had called Quijano to the stand.
0: It's interesting. I mean, the,
2: it seems like the point is whether or not race
0: is considered, not whether not who introduced that bit of evidence or that um, that consideration.
2: Well, the habeas the law the the law of habeas corpus is very limited and restricts the ways that various parties can challenge criminal defendants or actually criminal convicts at that point can challenge in federal court the grounds for their conviction. Mm-hmm. There there are a lot of procedural hurdles, some of which really come into play here and will come into play for Buck and, and will come into play in the Supreme Court. Um, but... The argument was essentially one of invited error, and this is an argument well known to appellate lawyers of every kind. You usually can't claim that there was error if you're the one who caused the error. So that's the reason the state court ended up denying relief. The attorney general opposed, in, in contrast to what the previous attorney general had said. But the right. attorney general opposed Keanio because they said Keanu, uh, on, on Buck's case because they said Buck is different. And the state court with the opposition denied relief on, on that ground. Uh, a, a second federal habeas petition, you, I mean, you identified the uh, complexities in federal habeas law and the procedural traps uh, that exist for almost every criminal convict. But second federal habeas petitions, after one has been denied, require a certificate of appealability get around a procedural default. That is, the appellant has to make a substantial showing of a denial of a constitutional right in order to get another chance to challenge uh, on appeal their their conviction. They've already had one go. Uh, But the district court, so they tried that here, but the district court and the Fifth Circuit found that no constitutional right was denied because of the invited error. That is, if you make the error, you, you in at least in this case, you called the witness, you're the one who asked for it, how are we going to say that you you were denied a constitutional right? At least that's what the district court in the Fifth Circuit found. They denied the certificate of appealability, and then they denied a motion to reopen the judgment, the, the, the first habeas judgment, under Federal Rule of Civil Procedures 60B, which allows uh, reopening a judgment for inadvertence or some other exceptional purpose. Uh, The case there went up to the the habeas denial and and, uh, denial of the certificate of appealability at least went up to the Supreme Court. They denied cert, but very unusually, three of the justices wrote in support of the denial of cert separately to say that because the defendant had been the one to call Keanu and there was a plausible reason for doing so. That is, Kiano ultimately testifies that Buck does not have, in his opinion, a high likelihood of committing uh, an additional crime. That there was a plausible reason for the defendant to do what he did, and therefore he invited the error and, and his constitutional challenge uh, wasn't preserved. But at the same time, two other justices, Justices uh, Kagan and Sotomayor, dissented uh, and thought that the issue at least deserved a certificate of appealability in order to ha- give him a chance to actually bring his habeas challenge and get a, a full a full hearing on it.
0: Okay. I think that cert denial was, uh, in, was in 2011, correct? That's right, 2011. What, what's happened since then? There's been some, I believe, intervening U.S. Supreme Court cases or precedent that have regarded this issue pertaining to procedurally defaulted claims is that correct?
2: That is correct. In 2013, the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Martinez against Ryan that provides an exception to the usual procedural default barrier for a certificate of appealability in ineffective assistance of counsel claims based on a number of factors. The claim has to be substantial. Uh, the appellant has to have had also had ineffective assistance of counsel at the initial habeas state, which is what caused mm-hmm. the default requiring there's certificate of appealability. And there has to be no alternate solution under state law, which is the case here. There's no sort of alternate option under Texas law. So Buck argues to the district court here, again, that all of these three factors are present in uh, essentially a third motion uh, under Rule 60D to reopen the earlier habeas decision because he had ineffective assistance of counsel and there's a substantial issue, and no Texas law gives him uh, uh, an alternate route here. He essentially says that the Martinez decision that the Supreme Court issued counts as an extraordinary fact in the case, along with the underlying racial issue and the Attorney General's concession of error and identification initially of Buck's situation, which was then changed by a different attorney general, uh, that the the situation is so extraordinary that he really should be entitled to a certificate of appealability, get around the procedural default, and allow him to bring this ultimate challenge uh, to his capital sentence on the basis of this testimony about his propensity to commit a future crime. The district court, however, denies relief here finding that evidence of racial propensity to commit a crime was harmless given the other factors present in the case, including the severity of the crime and the overall conclusion by Keanu that Buck was not likely particularly to commit a future offense.
0: Okay, so now I I think Buck is placed back in a similar situation that he's, he's already been in. He's been denied federal habeas relief from a district court. And wants to
2: seek a certificate of appealability, right? That's right. So he, the the district court's denial is affirmed by the Fifth Circuit. That's how we get here. Bucks filed a, a petition for certiorari, which the Supreme Court has granted. The so so originally the, the the primary ineffective assistance of counsel claim is somewhat narrower. The issue before the court in a in a specific way is really only whether Buck is entitled to a certificate of appealability so that he can bring his challenge to his conviction in federal court uh, at this point. But it's certainly, I think, likely that the court is going to be interested in using this as an opportunity to make very clear that this type of evidence is not acceptable in federal court. The Fifth Circuit is the most conservative circuit, uh, particularly on criminal law issues. Uh, the circuit denies requests for certificates of appealability about 60% of the time, meaning, obviously, as in Buck's case, the habeas petitioner isn't really even given a chance to give his, his or her arguments a full opportunity to, to be considered by judges. That's compared to around 6%. In the six, in the 11th circuit. So 60% the, of the time, the certificates are denied in the fifth circuit. Six percent of the time in the 11th circuit. In the fourth circuit, they're all granted. Sure. The view is, is clearly that that these should be these arguments should be given some he, full hearing. In a way, it's the opposite of the ninth circuit, which is often criticized for granting habeas petitions too frequently. Sure. Uh, but indeed, the Supreme Court has begun to criticize the fifth circuit for denying. Uh, attempts for prisoners to raise habeas challenges, uh, doing that too frequently. Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg, for example, joined a dissent from uh, denial of certiorari last term on the basis that the Fifth Circuit practices in certificated appeal- appealability settings are too onerous.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does seem like a pretty rare occurrence where you'll witness the Ninth Circuit denying the, just the ability to appeal and it's a surprising number, the 60%. I believe that an important issue, as well as the, the standard that was used to determine whether such a certificate of appealability should be granted. Um, what, what exactly was the standard applied by the Fifth Circuit Court?
2: So the Fifth Circuit adopted a rule that had been adopted also by the Eleventh Circuit, which is that intervening Supreme Court opinions like Martinez are insufficient as a ground on which to Reopen a judgment under federal rule of civil procedure 60B, which requires an extraordinary circumstance. A couple of other circuits have said that you have to look both at the Supreme Court case at Martinez itself and the other factors of the case that you're actually, that is actually before the court to determine if overall in the totality of the circumstances, the change in law of Martinez results in an extraordinary situation in this case. In, in which a certificate of appealability should be granted.
0: So it sounds like then there is a bit of a, a divide amongst the circuits as to what needs to be
2: considered in these contexts? That's exactly right. The, the 5th and 11th Circuit have taken a more stringent position. The 3rd Circuit and the 7th Circuit have taken a, a little bit more of an open totality of the circumstances position. And that circuit split is... Certainly, probably part of one of the reasons the Supreme Court took the case. Okay,
0: we've addressed a little bit the the issue that the the question itself, has presented before the Supreme Court, is procedural and, and somewhat narrow. But as you say, the ruling that will come down in several months, it could have a, a broad tenor to it, and, and certainly sort of a an impact meant to be felt, I think, throughout um, criminal courts around the country. What what exactly could that impact be? And in, in, um, how could such a narrow question stand to have such pronounced implications?
2: Well, you never know what the court is going to do, first of all. The court can always go in a lot of different <laughs> ways, and it could issue a, a broad opinion. It could be looking towards towards a broad opinion. It could be looking to construct more narrow opinions, particularly because this case is going to be heard in October. Uh, it's very unlikely and almost inconceivable that a new justice will be in place to replace Justice Scalia by October. Mm -hmm. So the court taking the case probably had in mind the fact that it would be deciding the case with a 4-4, possibly a 4-4 split, uh, certainly an eight-member court. That could indicate that the court is more likely in the coming term to craft a little bit narrower opinions, because it may be more difficult to get a majority um, for one side or other, particularly on close issues. So it, it's you never know whether it'll end up being a broad opinion or a narrow opinion. Certainly the court could at a very narrow level conclude that either in the, the same way the Fifth Circuit and Eleventh Circuit have concluded that the Martinez decision is not sufficient to potentially grant a certificate of appealability on its own, get around the procedural Default uh, in terms of a a reopening of the judgment, or that the Third and Seventh Circuit more holistic approach is appropriate under habeas law and end there. Uh, I do think it's likely, because I, I think that the court will broadly agree, that there will be quite a bit of condemnation of this type of evidence. Uh, It will be there'll be no uncertain terms by the end of his opinion. The court, look, the court is the justices don't live in a bubble. They're aware of the tensions in America right now in terms of race and justice. tensions have been there for a long time, but they're those that are really exploding in the public sphere at the moment. They're sensitive to the reality of this testimony. And the idea that African Americans are perhaps imprisoned, at least in part, perhaps in whole, than their population is, because of a focus by law enforcement over the years on some of those groups, or the inclusion of um, the effects of poverty and other other systemic problems, though including the war on drugs. So, so the justices are aware of some of the trends that have increased in the legal sphere regarding criminal law and criminal justice and I think are probably going known certain terms going to criticize this type of evidence at all. That said, you might really get a split as to whether or not the decision, potentially strategic decision by defense counsel here is enough in one way or another, even to get a certificate of appealability. The standard is relatively low for getting a certificate of appealability, generally speaking, but the concept of invited error is, is a pretty um, um, powerful one in legal jurisprudence. And when Justice Alito wrote his concurrence to the previous denial of cert in this case, that's really what he focused on. That there was a strategic reason for doing this, and it the jury presumably had all of that evidence before it and still made the decision that it did.
0: Sure, It's interesting. There, it does seem to be like you say, kind of two parallel levels here. Um, just the the normative consideration of you know whether this sort of thing could be a consideration of a death penalty jury, but then also more technical questions of, as to, well, if this is a, a strategic sort of testimony, whether that disqualifies an appeal. And certainly that's, that second consideration is much less um, inflammatory and, and grandiose, but as you say, is what the, the case could, could turn on.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that the court could go big on issue on the first question on the question of is this evidence okay in any context and, and could really say say no but go small in a way on the second question and say even though this evidence is not okay if you're the one who brings it up that's going to be hell you're going to be and there's a good reason for it that is it's not that your counsel was so ineffective that they were doing something completely irrational Right. The 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 witness's testimony overall was that, that Buck is not likely to commit this uh, a future offense and that in that context, it may be something different. Uh, so so, it, it, you know, it it really is an open and, and interesting question, and it's not clear what the court is uh, exactly going to do. But uh, I think that it's the kind of case that's going to get a lot of attention given the kind of evidence that that was presented and the fact that ultimately this man may be executed in part on the basis of that evidence. And that's sure. going to be troubling for a lot of folks, including, yeah. including folks on the Supreme Court. So um, it's going to be an interesting one to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, obviously, the, the end goal right. of... of... The petitioner Buck here is is another sentencing, another capital sentencing. But even if the court rules in his favor, there's still several years of litigation before it would get to that point. They're just ruling on the narrow issue of the certificate. So there'd be a long way to go before he might get another sentencing hearing, if he does at, at all.
2: That's exactly right. Buck could win in the Supreme Court here and lose on the merits of his habeas. Once he reopens his habeas, the, the habeas judgment and has a chance to make these arguments to a federal court. The federal court could conclude that Buck was not prejudiced by the introduction of this testimony or that it didn't substantially prejudice his, his constitutional rights or the, the, the ultimate result wouldn't have been different in any way. And in part, that will depend on what the Supreme Court rules on the first issue. If the Supreme Court really hammers down how incredibly devastating this type of evidence is, it'll be pretty hard for a later court to ignore it. If the Supreme Court, on the other hand, kind of pays lip service to it or passing interest or doesn't really address it, I don't think that they will. I don't think they would have taken the case without this issue. But the if the Supreme Court kind of just doesn't really talk too much about it, it may be less persuasive for the later court hearing the habeas petition to necessarily conclude that it was all that big of a deal.
0: Okay. Well, We'll leave it there for now, and we'll await the oral arguments in this case coming up in the next few months in October term 2016. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, thanks very much for being on the podcast.
2: My pleasure, Brian.
0: That will conclude our program for August 5th, 2016. I'd like to take this opportunity once more to tender very sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Brian Morris and Ben Foyer. And I'd like to thank you as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget, CLE credit is available for your having tuned into this program. There should be a link to a short true-false test at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'd like to thank the members of our production staff here at The Daily Journal, including Ellen Ireland, Nick Sonnenberg, Dominic Fercassa, and of course our editor, David Houston. Once again, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.